Thank you so much for worshiping with us. It's a joy to be together in the house of the Lord. Thank you, Josh, and others for leading us in worship this morning. Well, as Josh mentioned when he opened the service, here at Grace Bible Church, we have a commitment to preach what we call consecutive exposition. You've probably heard me say this before, but that means we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and we preach all the way through. And we trust that as we do this, God, who knows infinitely better than any of us, will bring about texts at the right time. And there have been, even in our short history of a church, a number of times when we have simply preached the next text in the, in the book that we're in, and it has been the perfect fit for the circumstances we find ourselves in. And that is the power of God's word to us. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that is true. And this morning we come to a text that pierces, a text that brings conviction Sexual sin is one of the areas that I wish I could eradicate from the church. It brings destruction, disruption, hurt, pain, sorrow, embarrassment, shame. It destroys relationships, reputations, trust, loyalty. And it is pervasive in our world. And sadly, in a lot of our churches. And it's something that needs to be addressed. It's something that is addressed in our text this morning. So, this morning, as we hear instruction about our conduct in this area, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And let the word of God, through the spirit of God, do the work that only he can do. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. We looked at the first two verses last week, but I want to keep this in context. So we'll read verses 1 through 6 before we begin this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, just like we do every week, we come to you and ask for help. And I ask, Lord, that this would be a time of enlightenment, that you would open our eyes to see what you have called us to as your children. For those who are apart from you, 
I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, as we talk about what is a very sensitive subject, please give grace. Grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing. And ultimately, would this cause us to long for the redemption that will come and to trust you for salvation, Father. So come and do the work now that you've promised to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, one thing I want to point out to you before we even work through these verses is the structure that Paul is using in this particular list of commands. And so what he's doing is he's giving us exhortations. Or you know what an exhortation is. It's you ought to do this kind of a thing. And so he gives us an exhortation and then he gives us the basis or the grounds for that thing he told us. So Paul isn't just telling us random instructions with no basis. He gives us an instruction and then he gives us the reason. Follow along really quickly. This actually goes through all the way through verse 14. But let me just look at our text today and show you what I mean. So verse 3, the exhortation is, Sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. In other words, put that away. The reason or the basis for that command is that as is proper among saints. Exhortation, verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking. Why? Well, the basis is they're out of place in the life of the Christian. End of verse 4, exhortation, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Why? Verse 5, the basis People who live this way have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Exhortation, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Why? Here's the basis. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, I think it's helpful to see Paul structure things in this way so that we know this is not baseless instruction. (laughs) This isn't Paul just saying, Look, I know better than you. I have more experience than you in this area. I want you to do this. Paul is smart. He's a lawyer. He knows how to develop an argument. And so when he says, here is what God requires of you for your sexual ethics, for how you conduct yourself, it's not just because Paul said so. It's because this has ramifications. This has consequence. And he gives us this as we work through. And I think seeing it this way helps in our obedience. I mean, it's one thing just to do something because someone tells you, and to the degree that you maybe respect or look up to that person, you do that. However, when we know the reason, it can really motivate us in our behavior. So as we go through this, notice the commands. Don't gloss over those. There are things for us to do here, but also notice the grounds or the reasoning that Paul gives as we work through this text. So let's do that. Let's start in verse 3 and work our way through. Paul condemns sexual sin by giving three related vices or sins that must be put away from the life of the Christian. First, sexual immorality. Paul uses the word porneia, which is where we get our English word pornography. It can also be translated fornication, which is any sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship. So in this context, we need to see this sexual immorality as being anything 
any sexual activity outside of God's good design between one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship. Just in case we start to think that this is only a recent problem, Paul had a very interesting context in Ephesus. There was basically no commonly accepted standard of morality in Ephesus and in a lot of the early world. There was no agreed upon standard. Anything went. And there was no one that could stand up and say, I don't think this is wrong. Why? That's just your opinion. It was this very similar to our day today, where everyone just did what they thought was best. There were adulterous relationships, slave owners using slaves for more than just labor, incest, homosexuality. And the root of almost all of this was the worship of false gods. Let me tell you, Satan knows how to get at a person's heart. And you look back in the Old Testament, and the reason, one of the main reasons that God called his people to holiness and didn't allow them to marry into the pagan nations around them was because of the huge and rampant immorality that was associated with the worship of false gods. Same thing was happening in Ephesus. So this is not some kind of recent development. I'm not looking at this going, man, this is new stuff. We really got to deal with this. This has been going on for the entire history of the world. All of this behavior, all of this deviation, all of this immorality would have been normal in the life of these Ephesians, people who are now coming into the Christian church, having been saved by the grace of God, as we saw in the first three chapters, and now Paul comes in with this instruction to put all of that away. Everything that they knew to be normal. Some of it was ignorance, some was willful. We know that. But either way, Paul says there is a standard when you name the name of Christ. And these are the things that must be dealt with. If you have a new heart, you have a new ethic and a new way of thinking about the world. So the second term Paul uses is impurity. Impurity. This word describes the perversion of God's good gift. Anything indecent or unclean. We might use purity or impurity when we talk about water. We purchased a home this past fall. We had to get a water test to make sure the water was pure, that we could drink it and we wouldn't get sick from it. Okay, so impurity is something that taints, something that mars. And we see examples of moral impurity all around us. The world is full of this kind of thing. Homosexuality is celebrated, along with any other combination of terms and letters you can think of heterosexual relationships between a man and a woman are pretty much only celebrated if you're doing whatever you feel like and whenever you feel like. No boundaries. Don't tell me what to do. Advertising is basically pornographic, horribly inappropriate. Clothing styles for men and women draw attention to things that just shouldn't be drawn attention to. There is impurity all around us. Paul is saying here that Christians must turn away from, what does he say? All impurity. <laughs> there is no little part that you can say, well, I can handle this. I mean, the, yeah, the, the big, gross stuff, we need to stay away, but I, I think this is fine. All impurity is to be done away with. I'm often dumbfounded. That eh, might be too strong of a word. I'm surprised. Sometimes when I talk to other believers, we talk about entertainment choices and what they're doing. I ask about content. 
I've not heard of that. What's, what's that? I said, what's the, well, it's you know, a little bit off color, but it's not too bad. I can handle it. What? You can handle impurity? You can handle inappropriate content? And I just got to wonder, brothers and sisters, is the hour and a half of entertainment worth the numbing of your conscience? Is what you're letting into your mind, whether you think it's acceptable or tolerable or you can handle it or not, is it worth it? Paul would say no. We must do away with all forms of impurity. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I, that means I'd have to change internet providers. I'd have to get rid of, you know, cancel my subscriptions. Okay. It's worth it. Dads, we stand at the gate of our home. Whatever we let into our home, we are responsible for. Young people, what you put in your mind, what you allow to come in through media, entertainment, whatever, you are responsible for. And we need to be so careful because as we're going to see in a few minutes, sin starts in seed form, small. And before long it grows. So let all impurity be put away from our life. Third, Paul speaks of covetousness. Coveting. The word has to do with desire. Usually a disproportionate desire or a desire for something that you don't have the right to have. When God gives his commands to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, the last commands he gives has to do with this very thing. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We're not to have this inordinate desire for things that are not ours. That includes relationships, satisfactions, all of those things fit into this category of covetousness. It means to yearn for something that is not yours. In the context of Ephesians 5, with Paul giving this instruction for our ethical life, this kind of covetousness suggests a sexual desire for something to which you have no right. When Paul commands us and warns us against sexual coveting, he's not merely dealing with the action, the, the, the produce of what was inside. He's dealing with the motivations or the attitudes. In other words... Maybe you read this and say, well, I'm glad I don't do that. I'm glad I don't struggle with that. Well, guess what? It's not just the actions. It's the attitudes. You remember Jesus' teaching, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. And as he goes through, he's giving all these examples about things. And he says, you've heard it said, referring to the law. He says, but I say, and then he goes on to explain what he's talking about. What is he doing in those circumstances? He is increasing the requirement of the law. Because what was happening is people were saying, especially the religious leaders, they would tell them, well, you're not actually doing the thing, and so you're, you're fine, you haven't broken the law, you're technically good. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This has to do with your heart. Listen to what he says, this is Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And all the religious leaders go, good, yep, cool, we haven't done that. But he goes on. Verse 28. But I say to you 
that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Covetousness has to do with intentions, with motives. Maybe you haven't acted on those impure thoughts yet, but if you are dwelling on them, if it's coming into your mind and you're nurturing that and harboring that inside, you are absolutely, and I am too, just as guilty of sin as if you go out and do the thing. It's all about the character and the nature and what's in our heart that causes us to do different actions. Our hands, our eyes, our sexual organs are not the cause of our sin. It is our sinful heart that desires what it desires and must be brought into conformity to the will and the word of God. Which is why Paul here is saying it is not just the sexual immorality. It's not just the act. It's not just the impure desire. It is the intention. It is the coveting, the desire for something that you ought not to have. Later, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. It comes from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, same word Paul uses in Ephesians 5. These are what defile a person. So before we write ourselves a pass in this area and say, well, I haven't done those things, be careful. It is the motivation of our heart. Every sin starts in seed form. What I mean by that is it starts small. Nobody lives a life of total purity, totally upright, and then all of a sudden one day just blows it all out of nowhere. It starts with a small thought, with a small image, and then it grows and grows. This is what James talks about. This is James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire, the thing coming from inside of him. And then, what happens? Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, do not let your desires go unchecked. Kill your sin while it is small. Don't let this grow and manifest and get to a place that you cannot come back from. Kill it. Well, it is in seed form. John Owen, commenting on Romans 8, 12, said this famous phrase, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. The Christian life is a battle. It is not passive. We do not just sit down and let the world pass us by. It is a fight. And thanks be to God that he gives us the tools and the weapons and the armor for that fight. We'll talk about that more when we come to the end. Paul says that these three things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among us as is proper among saints. That statement about what is proper among the saints there is an answer to the question, okay, we've come into the body of Christ, we are now Christians What is our standard of purity? I think the NIV puts it really well. 
when it says that there must not even be a hint of this kind of behavior in the life of the Christian. This is not something to handle. This isn't something to toy with. This is not an area, brothers and sisters, where we can say, well, I can handle that. No, you can't. Kill it and put it away from you. There must not even be a hint of this kind of thing. If you, if you knew what I knew and had heard what I have heard and seen the total and utter devastation of countless lives because of sexual sin, you would pledge your life to battling this. It is no joke. And it is a lifelong battle. When we take the name of Christ, when we are a Christian, there is no room for this kind of behavior. Now, Paul, moving on to verse 4. Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness could also be translated as obscene behavior. Things that are not proper, things that are not appropriate. This has to do with conduct that is shameful or disgraced. The kind of living that, living that would bring reproach upon you. But not only you. Paul's primary concern here is the church. Yes, we as individuals make up the church and he is definitely concerned with that. But our reputation is not just about us. You know that, right? As a believer, you name the name of Christ, you are his representative to the world. And to the degree that you conduct yourself in Christ-likeness is the degree to which the world can look at your life and say, that is different, and I want to know why. How is it refreshing to look exactly like the world? It's not. We're called to something different. Now the next couple of things he says, foolish talk, crude joking. In this context, Paul is concerned with dirty jokes, inappropriate content, laughing at things that you ought not to laugh at, that kind of stuff. But it goes beyond that to affecting every part of our speech, not just sexual speech. The world has this odd fascination with things that are like edgy. I mean, I worked construction and secular vocation for 18 years before coming into full-time ministry. If you've been on a construction crew, if you've been around a bunch of people, you know that it's almost expected that you're coarse, that you talk in a filthy way. Why? I mean, do you just ever wonder about that? <laughs> it's crazy. Paul is saying that when we name the name of Christ, there ought to be none of this kind of speech, none of this kind of conduct, this kind of behavior. Paul's point is that the church is not a construction crew. We are the bride of Christ. The ecclesia, the called out ones. We are individually filled with the Holy Spirit. We are corporately members of the body of Christ. And this call here about our speech, our conduct, our sexual ethics is to get us to live in a way worthy of the calling that God has given us. One of the questions that immediately came to my mind when I'm reading this in verse 4 is, how is thanksgiving the antidote? You see that? Read verse 4. Okay, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead of those things, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. 
You put that together right away? You see, oh, that's clear. You see, gratitude to God for what he has done, how he has revealed himself to us, is one of the primary motivators, or ought to be, for the way that we live our Christian life. All of our life ought to be in thankful response to God for what he has done. This is what we're going to celebrate on Wednesday when we come together for Thanksgiving Eve service to publicly and corporately praise God for his faithfulness to us. And when your life is so marked by thanksgiving, when you are so full of gratitude to God for what he has done, there will be less and less room for filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Because we are consumed with thanksgiving for our God. Paul now shifts a little bit his approach in verse 5. Earlier in verse 3, he's calling out these behaviors. And they're sort of objective behaviors. And he's saying, this kind of stuff can't be a part of your life. You need to get rid of this. Now, in verse 5, he personalizes the sin. And marks it as a characteristic that will be punished. In verses 5 and 6. You see that there in the text? Verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness are the objective realities. These are things that need to be done away with. But in verse 5, Paul's now talking about those who are sexually immoral, those who are impure and who are covetous. I don't think these are believers he's talking about in verse 5. The reason that I say that is because of what he says following. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, Paul has already established in the book of Ephesians that as believers, we have an inheritance. Not only that, but that inheritance is sealed with the Holy Spirit. This was chapter 1, around verse 13, 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So there are two kinds of people in this context. Those who have an inheritance because of Christ... And those who do not. You cannot belong to Christ and not have an inheritance. Likewise, you cannot go on in sin, living in unrepentant sin, on and on, and fool yourself into thinking that you do have an inheritance. You don't. So in verse 5, I do not believe this is a warning to believers, as in like, those who are this way, you better clean it up or you're going to lose that inheritance. That means the Holy Spirit is not God, that he doesn't have the power to keep us, but he does. Rather, what I think this is is a sobering illustration and reminder to us about the dire consequence of continuing to live in unrepentant sin. This is the future of people who do not repent and turn to Christ. Notice he says, everyone who is sexually immoral, who is impure, who is covetousness. This is what they are. I mean, this is the kind of behavior that marks their life and serves as an identifying trait. These people, unless they turn from their sin and come to Jesus, will be under the wrath of God. This is what Paul is saying next in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, because of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, which is idolatry, Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's look at verse 6 backwards, starting at the end. The sons of disobedience have already been defined in the book of Ephesians. 
We already saw this in chapter 2. They are those who follow the course of the world and obey the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And when we preached there, we said that these are the people who follow willingly the course of the world. So going back to Ephesians 5, 6, God's wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience because of the way they live, because they reject the good God-given design for their sexuality, for their conduct, for their speech. This kind of unrepentant living will, Paul says, invoke the wrath of God. Possibly the most important part of this verse is the beginning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What does that mean? What kind of empty words could deceive mankind in in reference to what he's talking about right here? Sexual ethics, our behavior. What kind of empty words might he be referring to? Well, it's words that deceive, words that communicate a wrong message. And I'm sure in Paul's day there were a number of things that he had in mind, different philosophies, different pagan teachings. But I want to bring this up to speed here for us. What are some things that you and I and our kids hear constantly in this culture that are empty, false, and deceptive words? Empty words like, it's fine to have sex before you're married. Everyone does that. Why, why would you wait? In fact, you should live together. Then you can see if you're compatible before you get married. Empty words like, well, pornography is really not that big of a deal. We're I mean, not actually going out and like hurting someone. I mean, nobody even has to know. It's just do, do what you want to do. You should be happy. Empty words like, you can dress however you want. It's someone else's problem if they look at you and start having bad thoughts. That's their problem. You do whatever you want to do. Empty words like, you deserve to be happy no matter what. You have same-sex attraction? Go for it. Who am I to stand in your way? You deserve to be happy. Does any of that sound familiar? Empty words that deceive. And this is what we are being warned against. And it is almost all that we hear in the world. Paul is saying, in a sense, we have a different standard if you are a Christian. Do not let the world dictate what your standard for sexual purity is. There is no standard in the world anymore. (laughs) Maybe a while ago you could have said there was some kind of standard, maybe not. But now, there's nothing. But praise God, we have his word We have the instruction of his word. And Paul's instruction is clear. We must put away all of this kind of behavior from among us. For the good of your own soul. For the good of the church. This is so important. Every aspect of our life communicates something. Did you know this? Everything you do is telling a story to the people who watch. The way you walk. The way you talk how you conduct yourself, what you do or do not laugh at, 
what you engage in, all of that is communicating something to the world and to the people that you influence. Notice Paul doesn't limit this behavior to a certain group. Like, okay, if you're, in, if you're in leadership, if you're in public leadership, you need to really watch this area. Well, that's true. But this is for everybody. <laughs> this is for every person who names the name of Christ. We are God's representatives in the world, ambassadors for Christ. And to the degree that we live our life in accordance with his word, we represent him well. To the degree that we pursue selfishness, we bring shame and reproach to the name of Jesus. Rick Phillips, commentator that I read, says this. A Christian who sexually tempts others by his or her dress or demeanor, who tells dirty jokes or engages in fornication or adultery, disgraces Christ before the world. If our actions communicate something about us, they certainly communicate something about our Lord, whose name we bear and who suffered and died on the cross to make us holy. Your life matters. The way that you live your life matters. And you can either honor God with your sexual life, married, single, young, old, whatever, man, woman, or you can dishonor him by your conduct. Now, As I close, there are two words that we must include in this discussion. We've heard all of the don't, can't, shouldn't. It's all true. But I would remind us of two words. Freedom and forgiveness. Freedom and forgiveness. Galatians 1. Nope, Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus Christ died on the cross to set you free from your sin. Sexual failure does not have to be the end-all, be-all, identifying trait of your life in Christ. There is freedom from those things. It is not the unpardonable sin It is not the thing that you are disqualified from heaven from. It is a sin that is egregious to God like every other sin committed. And in the same respect, the blood of Jesus covers that sin like every other sin committed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has what? Set you free from the law of sin and death. Do not let sexual sin bind you. Christ died for that. And he can set you free from that if you let him. There is freedom and secondly there is forgiveness. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity. In other words, if God should keep track of all of our sin and hold it against us. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God is willing and able to forgive sin. Every kind of sin. And if you are here this morning 
and you are stuck. If you are stuck in sexual addiction, if you have been the victim of someone else's sexual addiction, whether you are a man or a woman, there is hope. There is freedom and there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And there are men and women right here this morning who want to talk and pray with you. If this is something that you struggle with or something that you are bearing the marks of, it doesn't have to identify you. Christ is your identity if you are in him. So if that is helpful, Jan Anderson heads up our women's ministry. She would love to talk with you or put you into contact with a woman who can help you. If you're a man, come talk to any of the elders. Talk to someone you came to church with. This doesn't have to be the end of the road for you. There is freedom and forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, we say it all the time, but it is so good if we confess our sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That includes sexual immorality. He will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful way to come to the table, huh? with a new and fresh sense of the forgiveness of God and the freedom that comes by laying down your sin and and stepping away from it. I I don't mean to make it sound like this is just an instant thing. It's going to take time. But God is faithful. And he will bring you through that. So talk to someone today. If this is a position you're in, there is help and there is hope. Pray with me as we come to the table this morning.